there may exist a very real supernatural world and you know we may be drawn to it because we're meant to be a part of it maybe trigger what do you mean she didn't trigger me somebody's with her that's what you say in the book so are you a universalist who believes that everyone can go to heaven regardless of how they respond to christ on earth um intellectual universalism is dangerous thinking that in the end everyone is going to be okay but functional universalism is worse living like in the end everyone is going to be okay heaven or hell on earth no matter what religion you are like accept pe other people's idea okay because have you ever been to heaven have you ever seen it like, it's just not my beliefs that you know a, a just god will make you burn for eternity for something for free will that he gave you This is the question for you. What do you think happens when we die? Today we answer that question in the reality of eternal security found in the person of Jesus Christ. And today it is a great honor to have you here today. I know you could be a lot of different places. But I say this with the fullest assurance and confidence in my soul based upon the authority of God's word that God has brought you to this place today. There are none of you here by accident. The God of this universe has strategically and sovereignly brought your schedule to this moment to not just have an encounter with God, but for God to encounter you today. My name's Ed Newton, and it's a great honor and privilege to be here. We're based out of Orlando, Florida. My wife and I have just fallen in love with your church 12 years ago, we heard about your church. We heard about the launch of this church, prayed for this church, knew the people and leadership of this church, and knew that God was going to do a great work. And I love the diversity in this church. I love the fact that this church looks like a bag of Skittles. Do you know what I mean when I say that? There's a lot of flavor in this church. It's a representation of my own family. My wife's half Filipino. I call her my brown sugar. That's what I call her. We have a daughter named London who's 10 years old, 5th grader. Lola, 3rd grader, 8 years old. Liv, 2nd grader, 7 years old. We adopted a little boy from Africa, Ethiopia, Africa, who's a kindergartner, 5 years old. I call my little girls my sugar babies. Call my little man my sugar bear. And you know what that makes me, right? Sugar daddy. That's exactly right. And so in that... I'm so thankful for the invitation to be a part of this church today. Thank you for creating space to be here. If you've got a Bible, let's go ahead and open up together to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. I've been given an assignment today, not only from your pastor, but most of all from God, to speak to the issue and the essence of the assurance of salvation that we could have through the person of Jesus Christ. When it comes down to this reality of salvation, what happens when our life comes to an end. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we must recognize and realize this, that he, Hebrews 9, 27 says, it's appointed unto man to die once, then face the judgment. Death is coming for us all. However, we could miss death through this reality of the rapture that's spoken of in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. 
when the trumpet shall sound and the dead in Christ shall rise. And for those of us that are in a relationship with God, we'll be caught up in the air. Death and the rapture are a mystery to us. However, much like I saw this sign as I was on my way to a camp out in Colorado this summer, I saw this sign that says, Jesus is coming. And underneath it, I was disturbed by the message it said, so look busy. That's the essence of our society. Just look busy. But today I want to say this to you. Yes, Jesus is coming. But don't look busy. Be ready. Be ready. When I use the phrase and the terminology going redneck, I I don't know what that does for you. Maybe for some of you it's automatically you're thinking camouflage right now. But when I say going redneck, it basically means that you kind of go back to some home school remedies in regards to trying to find the solution for something, which means oftentimes using duct tape or bungee cords. Can I get an amen from somebody up in here? So as an itinerant evangelist that travels about 200 days a year, that literally there are moments I wake up like this morning and not know where I'm at. I was in Jackson, Mississippi. I live in Orlando, but I was speaking at a conference Friday and Saturday. And so there's a lot of days I wake up and just have to kind of get my bearings straight. So I go down to the lobby area, get some breakfast, cups of coffee, several to say the least. And I get my room key and I'm, I'm fully assured of the fact that I'm on the fourth floor. But I can't remember my room number. So going redneck means this. You go to the end of the hallway and you take that key and you start putting that key in every door. And I believe you're with me and I need some audience participation this morning. When that key is in the wrong door, what color light shows up? Red. But when you get to the right door, what color light shows up? Green. There are a lot of people that are seeking and searching for something to satisfy their soul. And this is the journey of their life, looking and looking and looking. And the red light stares them in the face. See, Ecclesiastes 3.11 is true. God has placed eternity in our heart. Until you come to know the one who made you, you'll never find your satisfaction in this earth. But that moment where you understand that the key is through faith alone, Christ alone, grace alone, that you realize and recognize that he is the way, the truth, and the life. But much like that key that oftentimes when I put it next to my cell phone, it deactivates that key. Or you put it in your wallet next to some other credit cards, it deactivates that key. And so then you go back to that room that you know you're in, and you put the key in, and the red light comes up, and you know you're at the right room. So you go back to the counter, and they reprogram the key. I need you to hear this this morning. It's not when you and I have faults and failures and we have these epic fails in our life that we lose our salvation. That key through the person of Christ and what he's done for us allows us to know that we cannot lose our salvation. Why? Because we did nothing to gain it. Therefore, if you earned it, you can lose it. But because since it was a gift to us, you can't lose it. So neither death nor life nor angels or present, or future, or height, or depth, shall ever separate you from the love of God. And so when we get to this passage this morning, we understand the writer, the apostle John. Now in the gospel of John, he speaks to, this is how you know that you can be in a relationship with Jesus from the standpoint that it's salvation. Now he's speaking to believers going, let me talk to you about the assurance of your salvation. And so this morning, I want to give you some principles and precepts that will guide our heart to know, don't miss this premise, that salvation 
is not a feeling. Salvation is a fact that you can know without any hesitation or reservation that you are eternally secure, as John 10, 27 and 28 would say, in the hands of the Father. 1 John chapter 5, verse 1 says, Everyone who believes, on the count of three, I need you to say the word believe. One, two, three, believe. You say, Ed, why do we have to say that out loud? Here's the reason why. Because believing can be deemed as just intellectual head knowledge, but that's not what the Apostle John is speaking about. He's speaking about heart knowledge, not head knowledge. See, there are a lot of people that are going to miss heaven by 16 inches. You go, Ed, what are you talking about? Because they know so much about Jesus here, but they've never allowed it to drop into their heart 16 inches. See, James 2.19 is true. The demons believe in Jesus, but they don't follow him. So intellectual head knowledge is insufficient for salvation. There are a lot of people that know a lot of good things about Jesus, but the big question is not so much what you know about Jesus. The bigger question is this, does Jesus know you? And how you and I know that we're in a relationship with Christ is because the assurance of peace and hope in our heart founded upon the finished work of his sacrifice upon the cross of Calvary. So this concept of believing is not just intellectual head knowledge, it's believing and receiving as John chapter 1 verse 12 says, so we can become children of God. Now notice this next phrase. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. That word born, you may know that in John chapter 3 verse 2. Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night, two possible hypothetical situations maybe. He was concerned about his reputation or he wanted to have a private, clandestine conversation with Christ. Either way, he addresses him. No one can do the things that you do unless he's from God. And then John 3, verse 3, Jesus answered. Nicodemus didn't ask a question. He made a statement. But Jesus, looking into the core of his heart, said, unless you are born again, you will never see the kingdom of God. He was speaking to a religious man. What he was saying is this is that in order for you to have heaven, you must be transformed from above. And to be transformed from above is to receive a new nature. It's Ezekiel 36 and 26 and 27. The Bible teaches that that God desires to give you a new heart. He removes a heart of stone, gives you a heart of flesh. You know what he does? He writes his commandments across your heart. See, religion's like putting Band-Aids over bullet wounds. But the good news of the gospel is like the neosporin that gets to the core of the issue and changes us from the inside out. We understand that the gospel is more than just behavior modification. It's heart transformation. Can I get an amen from somebody this morning? It's heart transformation. And so as we think about what the apostle John is saying, he's going, in order to be born again, it's about a heart change. Our God's the greatest cardiologist of all gives you a new heart. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. Old is gone, new has come. It's not you cleaning your life up and coming to Jesus. It's coming to Jesus and letting him change you from the inside out. That's what it means to be born again. To be born again, don't miss this. See, if you're born once, physically, you'll die twice. You say, Ed, break that down, slow your roll. I'm trying to figure out what you're saying. Born once, Physically, that's why you're here today, you were born. But to die twice, you say, okay, I understand the physical death, 
But there's a spiritual death. Your soul was created to live for all eternity in either heaven or hell. And because of the good news of the gospel, you receive that gift of salvation. Not only do you have a physical birthday, but you got a spiritual birthday. And so death is not a dead end. It's a doorway. You only die once, and you're reunited with God forever. You can know that you have salvation. And so he speaks to this in regards to knowing the commandments of God. Notice in verse 2, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. See, the commandments of God are not given to us so that if we obey them, checking off boxes, jumping through hoops, we gain a relationship with God. There are many people that live in such a religious fashion that they desire to obey the Bible so they can earn their place in heaven. It's backwards. You don't obey the commandments of God to earn salvation. Don't miss this. You gain salvation through Jesus Christ and what he's done, and the natural result of that is you obey the commandments. So since you have salvation, you should want to obey the commandments of God. It's not you obey the commandments and then you gain salvation. You already have favor with God if you've received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Therefore, the the litmus test of whether or not you're a follower of Jesus is when you say that you love God, you receive his son, and you desire to be obedient to his word. And there are a lot of people that say they love God, but they don't embrace Jesus. There are a lot of people that say they love God and don't love his word. There are a lot of people that look at the Bible as a book filled with cruel commandments. But this is not a book of cruel commandments. This is a book of sweet solutions. And so when the Bible says to us, the commandments of God are not burdensome. The commandments of God are only burdensome when you and I are trying to earn our salvation. And so as we think about what he's saying, it's Matthew eleven twenty eight. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you for it is what? easy. What's easy about it? It's not you earning, it's you receiving. Think about this. You have a fast food establishment in the area, I believe, 10 minutes from here called Sonic. Have you ever heard of Sonic? Based out of Oklahoma City. I love Sonic. I love everything about Sonic. I love the drinks at Sonic. Tater tots are phenomenal at Sonic. But when someone says they love God and does not love Jesus or his commandments would be the equivalent of saying, I love tater tots, but I hate Sonic. Does that make sense to anybody else in this room besides me? Do do you see the contrast? But to say that we love God is to be obedient to the commandments. Why? Because when you love someone, you care what they have to say. For example, my wife and I have been married 15 years. We're college sweethearts. Met her two weeks into my freshman year. She was a sophomore. I was a freshman. In those days when we dated, her mom and dad were missionaries in San Juan, Puerto Rico. And during those days, the cell phone was something that just common people couldn't afford. Not only that, but I didn't own a computer, didn't have an email address. Calling cards were way too expensive. You never wanted to call collect especially at an international country. So we wrote letters back and forth. Christmas break, Thanksgiving break, spring break, summer break, a lot of letters went back and forth. 
November 1997, I got down on one knee and said, Stephanie, will you spend the rest of your life with me? She said, yes, praise God. Then I said, I got one more gift for you. I presented to her a size 11 Reebok shoebox. Her immediate response was, Ed, I wear a size 5. I don't think these are going to work or fit. I said, no, they're not shoes. Take the lid off. She takes the lid off, and her response is, no, you didn't. I go, yes, I did. She goes, you kept every single letter for the four years of our dating relationship? I said, absolutely. Because when you love someone, you care what they have to say. See, when we say that we love God, we want to be obedient to his commandments. But see, I, got, I just have to say this to you. I meet so many people that are just in religious format and fashion trying to obey the commandments of God so God will love them. Listen to me. God loves you, and not only does he love you, but he actually likes you too. He wants to be in a relationship with you. And the word of God is just simply just a love letter from God. And we rush to the mailbox going, God, speak to me. And so we hear this unending covenant. This unending covenant is, don't miss this. It's not like on a, in a marriage ceremony where we look at our loved ones, much like I said to Stephanie in 1998, till death do us part. God speaks this to you. Boy, I'm getting excited just thinking about what I'm about to say right now. When you give your life to Jesus Christ, it's not till death do us part. It's till death brings us together. That's the covenant that God keeps with us. So when we have faults and failures and as the book of Proverbs says, a righteous man falls down seven times, but you know what happens? It gets back up. That's the fruit of being in a relationship with God. Godliness is not perfection. Godliness is pursuing Jesus. We're not going to be exempt from hardship. And the indicator that we love God is that we obey his commandments, this unending covenant. But notice this in verse 4, for everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Victory overcome the world. Don't miss this, church. Jesus Christ said it himself in John 16, 33. In this world you'll have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. 1 John 4, 4, greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. Why? Because Jesus Christ has come back from the dead. He's defeated sin and death. Sin couldn't touch him. The cross couldn't hold him. And the grave couldn't contain him. And because he lives, we can face tomorrow. And because he lives, we can know we have eternal life. And what we understand today is this. Because Jesus Christ is alive, there is a hope and an assurance that you and I could walk in with great clarity. There's going to be a lot of days, church, that you wake up and feel not like a Christian. There's going to be a lot of days that you feel as if God's disconnected himself from you. There's a lot of days that you know the forgiveness of God, but you can't forgive yourself. Have you ever been there? Listen to me, church. I'm not here to parade as if I'm the bonic believer. I'm more of a godly mess than a godly man. I got issues. I'm dysfunctional at every level. And my emotions are fleeting and fading and like a roller coaster. But when we got to come back to the word of God, I don't stand up here in a Dr. Phil session trying to comfort you today. My message today is not in pop psychology. My message is marinated, saturated, and percolating in my heart from the word of God that gives you authority. 
And so you can take it to the bank today that the Word of God is true for all people, all places, all times. And you can know that you have a relationship with God because Jesus is alive. Romans 4.25, He has justified us because of His resurrection. And what we know today is true, that there's a hope within us. I think about this story of a little boy named Johnny with Down syndrome. It was an Easter Sunday morning, and Sunday school teacher gave the assignment and said, little boys and girls, here's what we're going to do. She passed out these empty eggs, said, I want you to take these eggs, and I want you to go into the parking lot, and I want you to find something that represents life. You can only imagine what these little boys and girls put inside those empty eggs. Bugs, flowers, leaves, blades of grass. They all come back into the Sunday school class. They open up the eggs. It's this show-and-tell moment. And all of a sudden, the teacher opens up this empty egg and asks the question, who doesn't understand the assignment? From the back of the room, little Johnny with Down syndrome raised his hand. Johnny, I'm so sorry. I didn't explain it well enough. And Johnny said this, teacher, I understood. So, Johnny, why is your egg empty? And then he said it. Because you asked us to find something that showed life. And I was thinking... The best thing that shows life is Jesus is alive and the tomb is empty and that's why my egg is empty. Yeah, come on. It's all right to clap this morning. It's all right. Two months later, Johnny died. Young preacher stood up on a platform not knowing what to say but just said Johnny loved Jesus. He has a home in heaven. He said, but we're going to do something a little different today. He said his Sunday school class loved him. And before he died, Johnny taught them a major lesson. Because Jesus is alive. It's the greatest show and tell moment of life. And a group of seven and eight-year-old little boys and girls began to walk in front of the casket. And they didn't put flowers in the casket. They didn't put colored pictures in the casket. They didn't put toys in the casket. You know what they put inside the casket? Empty eggs. As if to say, where is your sting, O death? It's been swallowed up in the grave. And we have hope today because of Jesus being alive. Unending covenant. Notice this real quickly. We notice not only the unending covenant, we notice the unveiled confession. Unveiled confession. Verse 6, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. Therefore, there are three that testify. Verse 8, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. These three agree. Now, ladies and gentlemen, please understand, I know the verses I've just read can sound confusing. Three witnesses, blood, water, Spirit. Understand the context in which this was written. In order for something to be considered validated, authentic, and legitimate, there had to be three witnesses. So what the Apostle John is doing to teach us that we can know that we can have assurance of salvation in Jesus Christ is not only speak to us about the victory that we have through Christ and Him coming back from the dead so we can know that we've been born again because Jesus is alive, but He also gives validation by three testimonies. The Spirit, water, and blood. You go, Ed, what's the water? 
The waters in that moment in Matthew 3, 16 and 17, when John the Baptist baptizes Jesus. Symbolism of the fact of the death, burial, and resurrection. As Jesus came out of the water, two supernatural moments happened. A dove descended on the shoulder of Jesus as to say that he is the anointed one by the Holy Spirit. Now let me say this in parentheses. Some scholars would like to say that Jesus became anointed at his baptism. I'd like to correct that and rectify that and say he's always been anointed. It was just a symbol. But the other supernatural act is God speaking from heaven and saying, This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. It's the verses that we quoted this morning, read off the screen. Colossians 1.19, it pleased God to allow his fullness to dwell in Jesus. So what is this spirit? The Holy Spirit reveals to the Roman centurion. Now think about this. You're a church of, of a multicultural aspect, atmosphere. Here's a Roman centurion, a Gentile, non-Jewish individual that makes this profession at the cross of Calvary. Surely this is the Son of God. Who revealed that to him? Holy Spirit. And it's in that moment we understand that salvation was for every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every people group. And so the Spirit is testifying at the cross that Jesus is the acceptable sacrifice for our sin. But what is the blood? The blood is this moment where we understand without the, the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of of sin. Ephesians 1 7 teaches that. And there is Jesus who was wounded for our transgression, bruised for our iniquity, the chastisement of our peace upon him by his stripes were healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've all turned our own way, and the Lord laid upon him the iniquity of us all. And there in that moment, three words changed history forever, changes history for you today. When he said these words, it is finished. He paid your sin debt, my sin debt, in full. And when he breathed out his last, Matthew 27, 51 speaks of this. The veil was torn from top to bottom. Now let me clarify, because I'm not assuming that you understand what I'm talking about. I didn't grow up in church. My mom and dad are both deaf, hearing impaired, talking about an unreached people group. Not many churches have deaf ministries. And so I I just fell through the cracks. And so I just don't assume that people know this. I had to go off to Bible college to understand this. But one of the things that's so beautiful about the cross of Calvary is that when Jesus Christ breathed out his last, the temple, which had a veil, a curtain, 30 by 60, that separated the common people, the Jewish nation at that time. Gentiles were not even allowed into the temple. But the priests would go behind the veil to what's known as the Holy of Holies. You go ahead, break that down. The power, the presence, and the prestige of God was contained in a four-by-four-by-two box known as the Ark of the Covenant. Now you go ahead, listen to me. You, you got to slow down because I, I'm like trying to drink from a fire hydrant right now. Listen, listen to me. The God of the universe... God of the universe who cannot be contained by the universe so desired to be at the center of his people. He put his presence in a box. Put his presence in a box so he could be with his people. 
one day a year on the day of atonement, a priest would take a sacrifice into the holy of holies so that the common people like you and me could be forgiven. As to say, we had a mediator, kind of an earthly high priest, but when Jesus died for our sin, paid it in full and breathed his last, the veil was torn from top to bottom. You know why? Because you and I don't need an earthly high priest anymore. Jesus is our high priest. He's the one that gives us access to a holy God. So it's not by you going to anyone else in this room trying to somehow make it known that, that I need you to, to make intercession for me. Jesus made intercession for you. He is our high priest that was tempted and tested as we are yet without sin. He is our high priest who knew no sin that became sin that we could become the righteousness of God. And what Jesus did by interceding is he absorbed the wrath of God so that you and I could find forgiveness. Christ was forsaken so you and I could be forgiven. See, Psalm 5, 4 is true. God can't look upon evil. Revelation 21, 26, and 27, nothing unclean gets into heaven. So how is it that you and I could know that we have the assurance of salvation? Jesus Christ committed no sin, died for sinners, came back from the dead, and now we have access to a holy God. Though we got faults and failures, God looks at you just as if you've never sinned because of the righteousness of Jesus. That's the good news of the gospel. Let me see if I can illustrate this. There's a well-known band by the name of U2. Lead singer is a gentleman by the name of Bono. Late 80s, they were on a tour, and they came to Phoenix. At that time, the song known as Pride, you may know that song is that chorus in the name of love. It was a song tributed to Martin Luther King who lived his life with many other reformers to help us understand there's only one race, and it's the human race. And so that pride song was this anthem and this declaration that we need to work together. On this particular tour coming into Phoenix, the band known as U2 gets a death threat from an anonymous individual saying, if you sing that song, shots will ring out just like they did in the life of Dr. Martin Luther King. So it was a death threat. Sing the song, you'll be killed. So the FBI gets involved, the management gets involved, and in Phoenix they just ask you two, Bono specifically, don't sing the song. They got together as a band and Bono said, no, we're singing this song. And we're going to make it the last song of the night. All of a sudden, Bono steps to the the front of the stage, begins to sing this song, Pride, closes his eyes, takes a step back, and he begins to wait for shots to ring out. He was willing to die for this anthem, for this declaration. At the end of the song, how did that moment of like, okay, maybe this was just an empty death threat, he opens his eyes, and you know what he finds out? His bass player by the name of Adam Clayton was standing in front of him the entire time willing to take a bullet for him. Ladies and gentlemen, would you understand? God sent forth his son, born of a woman, under the law to redeem us from the law. 
It's John 3, 17. God didn't send his son to condemn the world, but through him we might be saved. Jesus Christ stands between heaven and this earth and lives a life that we could not live and gives us eternal life that we could not gain. And then we get to this last principle, not only an unending covenant, number two, an unveiled confession, but notice this in verse 11. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. I write these things to you that you may believe in the name of the son of God, that you may know you have eternal life. Point number one, unending covenant. Point number two, unveiled confession. Point number three, an unspoken confidence. Whoever has the son has life. You don't have the son, you don't have life. Some would interpret that as arrogance. I was on an airplane coming back from a speaking engagement, 6 a.m., sitting next to a gentleman. Usually there's a conversation that kind of goes back and forth of what do you do for a living. I travel as if I look homeless. I'm just being honest. I look sketchy at a lot of levels. At this particular time, I have hair down to my shoulders. I'm in a tank top, basketball shorts, flat bill cap. I look more like a skateboarder than a preacher. Gentleman asked me, says, what do you do for a living? I said, I'm a preacher. Automatically, the conversation gets awkward. And then for the next few moments, he begins to belittle me. Why? Because he started the conversation with this as soon as I said I was a preacher. So he says, so you're telling me that the only way I can get to heaven is through Jesus Christ. I said, absolutely. See, folks, I I work for GPS, God's Postal Service. I don't write the mail. I just deliver it. I just deliver it. I said, absolutely, sir. And then he said, that's arrogant. You are arrogant to believe that. I said, sir, listen to me. October 17th, 1990, as a freshman in high school, Jesus Christ found me when I wasn't looking for him. He saved me, changed me. I'm going to heaven not because of what I've done. I'm going to heaven because of what Jesus has done. And then I asked the question, sir, when your life comes to an end, will you go to heaven? With a resounding, emphatic yes. I said, sir, by what authority do you say that? He said, because I'm a good person. I said, sir, can I just be honest with you? For the past 15 minutes, you've belittled me, mocked me, made fun of me, and called me arrogant because I believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. Can I tell you what's arrogant? Arrogant is you saying that you're so good, you can impress a holy God. That's arrogance. Ladies and gentlemen, you'll hear this analogy at some point in your life. Religion is like a mountain. In the end, we all get God. And one pathway is Jesus, and another pathway is a different religion. But can I make it very clear this morning, that's not the message of Christianity, you working up some mountain to get God. Here's the message of Christianity. It's God coming down the mountain to get you. That's the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. And I write these things that you may know, that you may know. You have eternal life. Salvation is not a feeling. It's a fact. I'll close with this illustration. 
wealthy father was an avid art collector of expensive, extravagant pieces of art. His son was called off into duty to serve in Vietnam. Shortly thereafter gets the news that his son had passed away and saving the life of his comrades, one specifically as he was carrying this man from danger, unfortunately, this son was killed. The one that was rescued in those bunkers, in those moments of hanging out in the barracks, heard about home, heard about his dad being an, an avid art collector. He began to take painting lessons and painted a picture and a portrait of the son of this wealthy father, avid art collector, painting this portrait just to say thank you. So here's this young soldier that rings a doorbell to meet a man he's never met in his entire life, but very grateful for the sacrifice of his son. He says, sir, you don't know me, but your son saved my life. I want to give you a token of my thanksgiving. It's not much. I'm not a real good artist. He said, but I painted a picture of your son just to let you know how grateful I am. So the father removes his prized piece of artistic renderings from the mantle area and puts this picture of the son above the mantle. Fast forward. The father dies, there's an estate sale, there's an auction. All the pieces of artwork are on the stage, and the one portrait of the son is center stage. Auctioneer slams the gavel, the auction will now begin. So many prominent, popular, powerful people sitting in the, in the gathering that day, wanting to bid on the, on the Rembrandts and the Van Goghs, and all of a sudden in that moment, all of a sudden in that moment, it was very clear based upon the auctioneer's statements. In order for us to begin this auction, we must first begin to bid on the portrait and picture of the son. Would anybody give $100? Silence. It began to work its way down to eventually $10 was the offer. No one wanted the portrait until one man from the very back of the room raised his hand and said, Sir, I'll buy that painting. I was the gardener here at this estate. Loved the father, loved the son. I'll buy it. Exchange was made. The gardener's now walking to the back of the room with the precious piece of artwork that meant nothing to anybody else in the room except for him. And then all of a sudden, the the gavel slammed, auction over. Anger in the crowd And then the auctioneer said this, in the last will and testament of the estate owner, the father, he made it very clear that whoever gets the son gets it all. Gets it all. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son does not have life. If you get the son, you get it all. You get acceptance. You're called the beloved. You can be changed. You can be delivered. You can have eternal life. You can have forgiveness. You can have grace. You can be made holy. You can have an intercessor. You can be justified. You can have his kindness. You can have his limitless love. You can get his mercy. Your name can be written in the Lamb's book of life. You can be called an overcomer. You can have the power of the resurrection within you. You can have rest. You can have strength. You can have a mighty tower. You can be united with the family of God. And you can have victory. But most of all, you can be washed by the blood of the Lamb. You got Jesus. You get it all. You get it all. 
And so today I ask that you would stand with me in the house of God. Thank you so much. Everyone standing in the house of God, thank you so much for listening. Heads bowed, eyes closed for a brief moment. Our worship team is going to come and help us in our time of response. Every time there's revelation, there's a response. Heads bowed, eyes closed just for a brief moment. I'm not here to talk you into something because if I could talk you into something, someone else is going to talk you out of it. But today is a God moment for many of you. You feel the tug on your heart that you need to receive Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, and you've never done that. 2 Corinthians 13, 5 says, examine yourself to see whether or not you're in the faith. What does it mean to examine yourself? That as you look to the chapters of your life, and can you go back to a time where you received the gift of salvation by entering into a relationship with Jesus Christ? If there's not been that time in your life, if you've never received Jesus and this gift of salvation, today would you be willing to put your pride aside? Would you be willing today to admit before a holy God that you're not good enough to get into heaven and receive the gift of Jesus Christ and what he's done for us on the cross and through the empty tomb? Many of you have never done that before. You've never received that gift of salvation. Today, we want to offer you this opportunity. Once more, we're not trying to manipulate you. It's not by guilt. It's by grace. And so today, if it's your desire to receive the Son of Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, giving Him your life, it's the great exchange. He takes our sin and sets us free. If you've never done that, you've never made that decision to become a Christ follower, I want to give you this opportunity. It's first admitting that you're a sinner. We've all sinned, fall short of the glory of God. But good news, God demonstrated his love towards us while we're yet sinners. Christ died for us. In Romans 10, 13, whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. What does it mean to call on the name of the Lord? You're asking him to save you from your sin, from yourself, and from being separated from God. Save me. It's not the words of this prayer that save you. It's the attitude of your heart. Your faith is not in a prayer. Your faith is in a person, Jesus Christ. And if you've never made that decision, and today you're ready, would you be willing to say this to Jesus quietly in your own heart? putting your trust and faith in Christ. If you've never done that, right here, right now, would you say this in your heart to Jesus? Lord Jesus, I admit that I'm a sinner. I believe that you died on the cross for me and my sin. And right now I'm asking you to save me, change me, forgive me, take all of me. With heads bowed, eyes closed, in Luke 15, the Bible teaches when someone makes that kind of decision, there's a celebration in heaven. It's a big deal in heaven when someone makes that kind of decision because it's not just taking moral people and making them better people, it's taking dead, spiritually dead people and making them alive. That's a big deal. And today I'm going to ask with boldness and courage, not being ashamed of your decision. See, we want to celebrate with you. This church wants to party with you today. 
If you gave your life to Jesus Christ, that's the decision that you just made. Would you just right now, real quickly, would you just lift up your hand so I can see you? Don't be ashamed of this gift. You received Jesus today. You just prayed that prayer in faith. Just lift up your hand right where you're standing. Praise God for your boldness. Praise God for your courage. For those of you that just raised your hand, I'm going to ask that you put your hands down. And only you look at me. Just those of you that just raised your hand, just look at me. I would never do anything to embarrass you. I would never do anything to put a microphone in your face and say, speak. That's not why I'm here. It's not why this church is here. But you need to know that being in a relationship with Jesus is one of the one of the most beautiful aspects of your life because you get to walk with Jesus with other people. And we want to help you in this faith journey. Today's more than a decision, it's a direction. It's a new nature. So here's what I want to say to you. There are many of you today that just lifted up your hand in boldness and courage. Our ministers in just a moment are going to be standing at the front. You say, Ed, what are you about to ask me to do? We need to get your name, not so we can stalk you. We want to be in relationship with you to help you follow Jesus. I know what you're thinking. You're going, Ed, what are people going to think of me? No, listen to me. This church will celebrate your decision. So for those of you that gave your life to Jesus Christ, in just a moment, I'm going to pray. We're going to say amen, and then we're going to begin to sing. Now, here's what I need us to do real quickly. The entire house of God this morning, everybody in the house this morning, I need you to look at me. Everybody in the house of God this morning. I need you to know that there are people in this room that made the greatest decision of their life. But there's fear. There's trepidation. There's this moment of what will people think of me? So what we need to do this morning is we just need to even the playing surface. So I'm going to need you to do me a favor. Everybody in the house of God participate with this. I need you to look at your neighbor on the left and the right right now. Just look at your neighbor on the left and right. Now look this direction. Now I want you to say this to the person on the left or right. I want you to say this to them. If you gave your life to Jesus, just go ahead and say that to the person on the left or right. If you gave your life to Jesus... want to go forward, just say that again, you want to go forward, I'll go with you, now look right here, for some of you that's the first time you smiled all morning, and that's a good thing, but you know what you just did, you just invited some people to help you get down that aisle to the front to talk to a minister, now These people are going to operate like Navy SEALs. They're going to do whatever it takes to get you down to the front. You say, Ed, why do I got to come forward? Because if you can't stand up for Jesus in here, it's going to be really difficult for you to stand up for Jesus outside of here. And we want to overwhelm you with applause and love so that you can know that the greatest decision of your life happened today. Now, church family at Hope Church, there are going to be some of you that have made other decisions. You're already a Christ follower, and you just need to spend some time here at the altar. By you coming and spending time, you're going to give courage to some of these people that need to respond. Some of you have been visiting this church. It's time for you to give up your visitor space and come join this church. Come join this church. Today you come. Other decisions are going to be happening, but core group membership of Hope Church, would you immediately 
respond so we can create an atmosphere that it's okay to come and talk to pastors. It's okay to come forward. That's normal. And for those of you that gave your life to Jesus, listen to me. I know your heart's beating a thousand miles an hour, but your neighbor, they're going to help you get down here. You gave your life to Christ. Don't be embarrassed. Don't be ashamed. I'm going to pray that God will give you courage. We're going to sing as soon as I say amen. Ministers will be at the front. You gave your life to Christ. You come and tell one of these pastors.